people say, well, why is there sin and death if there's a God and God is good? I say, because our work is not done. We're making some progress, absolutely. My message is not one of doom and gloom because I believe this is the best time in human history to be alive. Does that mean that there isn't still lots more to do? There is tons to do. Feels like an infinite amount of things to do. But the message of Jesus, and I think the prophets in the Old and New Testament, is to keep pushing forward, to redeem, to save, to heal, as many people as possible, and not to find ways to excuse ourselves for not healing them. Ho, 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 and happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah. Welcome to the Commune Podcast, where every week we explore the ideas and practices that bring us together and help us live healthy and purpose-filled lives. A brief personal note of thanks and gratitude to all of you listeners who have supported this podcast and given us the fuel to try and create engaging episodes every week. Thank you. Today, we talk about the man of the hour. That's right, the one and only J.C., We know that Jesus urged us to love thy neighbor, that he performed miracles on behalf of the poor and lame. He was a trailblazer. Just by sitting down to dinner, a deeply meaningful ritual in biblical times with women, tax collectors, sinners, lepers, and the ill, he also had a sense for the dramatic political performance. But is it fair to think of Jesus as a political activist? For this special Christmas episode, we sat down with our good friend from the United Church of Christ in Sunnyvale, California, Pastor Ron Buford. You might remember him as the founder of Racist Anonymous from our episode on implicit bias. Today, we explore Jesus as a political activist. I'm Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to Commune. Pastor Ron Buford, you're back. Well, it's good to be here. Great to see you again. Great to see you. Thank you for coming back. We just loved that first episode. We couldn't get enough of you. So it's Christmas. Yay. Yes. It's a fabulous time of year. I think it's a time of year that hopefully inspires us to step back, to take a breath, and to appreciate life and be grateful for for what we have and and examine some of the... uh, the bigger issues. Yes. And so today, I'd ask you to start with, in your mind, was Jesus a political activist? I believe Jesus was absolutely political. There is some interesting new work that looks at Jesus that's by Reza Aslan, uh, who's an interesting scholar, Mm -hmm. that looks at Jesus' upbringing, childhood, and his community, as they've done some archaeological work on Nazareth and what was happening in that community. And there's no question, even though we focus more on the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Mm -hmm. that there was a third group, and that third group was a bit more radical. And I believe Jesus had some affiliation with that group. And in some ways, it explains what happens to Jesus at the end. I'd always wondered why they hung Jesus between two thieves. Mm -hmm. 
latest research shows that thieves was probably a bad translation. Mm. Um, Jesus was really hung between two bandits who were political operators, and Jesus was seen as a political threat and execution. His execution, we call it crucifixion, which sort of sanitizes it, but his execution, if uh, Jesus was being crucified today, it would have been in an electric chair or by lethal injection. Jesus' execution was at the hands of the state because his action was very political. Mm -hmm. Can you draw from specific stories that can help us understand why you would think of him as political? Well, first of all, we see Jesus um, in the light of the books that are written about him. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, who do the writers of the gospel think they are portraying? And what, what are they saying about Jesus in the way they characterize him? And so often, people will just pick up the Bible without considering its context, its historical and cultural context. But in truth, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke is trying to tell a compelling story about Jesus. And it is no accident that at Jesus' birth, when Mary breaks into this thing we call the Magnificat, if you look at it closely, uh, it sounds almost like the Communist Manifesto. You know, that God is going to do something. God is going to break into human history. He's going to bring down the rich. He's going to lift up the poor. If we said that in some of our churches today, people would say, stop being political. Mm -hmm. I say, we're not being political. We're, we're talking about Jesus. This is what Mary said when the angel announced to her that Jesus was about to be born. She didn't say, we're going to have this new spiritual thing and we're going to be enlightened. She said, no, the, the rich are going to be brought down. The poor are going to be raised up. It sounds political to me. Yeah. And so he was addressing issues that are salient to our time now. Oh, very much. About social justice and economic inequity. Absolutely. In fact, let's take Luke as an example. One of the things that we now know is that the writer of the book of Luke and the writer of the book of Acts are the same writer. What's interesting about that in the past year or so, and I'm not the first person to read the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and, and ask the question, was the Luke writer possibly a woman? Why do we ask that question? We ask that question because so often in the Bible, women are unnamed, but not in the Gospel of Luke, nor in the book of Acts. Women are present, they are named, and there are more of them, and they have roles that are very critical to Jesus' message. He made a point of including women rather than excluding them. Jesus could be considered revolutionary just in the company that he kept. Absolutely. Because he was reaching out to lepers, you know, groups that were castigated. Absolutely. And bringing them in under God. So I want to 
mind a little bit the topic of civil disobedience and the Bible, because, and I'm no scripture expert, but from what I do know, there are some conflicting messages within the Bible around the topic of civil disobedience. There are many examples of stories that exemplify essentially people acting against the state because they believe in what is right or what is godly. Then on the other hand, you also have scripture that very much reveres the power of authority. I wonder how you see civil disobedience within the context of the Bible. And does the Bible or religious scripture support the notion of civil disobedience? Absolutely. In the Old Testament, and one of the biblical texts that Jesus seems to refer to very much are stories from like the Daniel and the lion den story. And the fact that Daniel was disobedient to the authorities and honored God was very important and revered. The stories of the three brothers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've got these three guys who were standing against uh, the king and they refused to bow down. They said, no, we won't do that. We will only bow to God. That sort of civil disobedience is something that's important. And Jesus goes back and references that kind of civil disobedience when he's asked, for example, about paying taxes. And he says, whose face is on this coin? Right. And they say, the emperor's. He said, well, then it's the emperor's money. Give to the emperor what belongs to the emperor, Mm -hmm. but give to God that which belongs to God. And, And that raises a very important question about humanity. Whose image is this person? And if it is the image of God, then you should give to them that which belongs to God. So I think in that sense, we're called to stand against the state and in support of people. For example, to look at the treatment of immigrants coming into this country. Whose image is on those people, those boys, those girls, those men, those women? We must find some ways to recognize the fact that they are in the image of God and therefore they are the children of God, and we must do right by them. Jesus also seemed to have personality characteristics of an activist. I hesitate to use the word showmanship, but he performed miracles. Now, he performed miracles not for his own aggrandizement, for his own enrichment. He did so on the behalf of others, which is a key differentiation. But still, he knew how to market change. Absolutely. And often, and I'm going to say this, the people of light are not as shrewd, effective, as good as the people of darkness, as we see in our current administration, Mm. who is manipulating people and is very good at it. Sometimes I look at that and I think, well, I wish the people who were advocating for 
justice and for rights were as shrewd and as good at it as he is. Jesus said, we should be as wise as serpents and gentle as lambs. And I believe when Jesus says this, he really means for us to be effective. Jesus says, would that the children of light would be as shrewd in doing good as the children of darkness are in doing evil. Martin Luther King says in his letter from a Birmingham jail that people will remember not so much the people who did evil, but will remember the good people who remained silent. And I sort of put as a corollary the good people who not only remained silent, but the people, good people, who didn't stay up night and day tweeting at 3 a.m. in the morning about the wrongs that are happening. We must be as single-minded and focused uh, to do good. Yeah. Bringing this into modern day, and this is something I'm, I'm struggling to understand, that we have people of God in this country, evangelicals particularly, that believe deeply in the gospel of Jesus and uh, in his message, which was very much about uplifting the poor and the meek. At the same time, this group disproportionately supports policies that are in direct opposition to the gospel of Jesus. How do we square that? Well, I believe that um, many of our religious teachers and leaders have over-spiritualized the gospel. They have taken certain concepts and ideals and said, well, these aren't to be followed literally. Jesus said if a man has two coats and he doesn't need them both, he should give one away. And people say, oh, no, <laughs> Jesus couldn't have meant that <laughs> because that requires that I, I do something. Well, that's right. I mean, Jesus' teachings are next to, in some ways, impossible to follow if you want to say what is the absolute best thing to do. Was it Jesus' point to say that because you can't do something better, you shouldn't do it? I think no. I think the, the point was that we should all be doing more than we're doing. And the people who've over-spiritualized the gospel and don't hear in it a call to action, I think are missing the point. Yeah, I mean, do you think that Jesus' acceptance of his own sentencing, of his own crucifixion, in some ways was his way of saying that now you are responsible for bringing fairness and truth and equality forward. Do you think that Jesus was challenging us to assume our own personal responsibility to carry forth action and truth? Absolutely. In my tradition, we say God is still speaking. It means many things, but among the things it means is that creation is still ongoing. It also says that if creation is still ongoing, that our human role in creation 
is to move creation forward, to think of these ideas and put them to work. I believe that from the beginning, the metaphor of the garden of good and evil, where there are these choices and decisions to make, and that God has put us into the world as God's garden to be fruitful and multiplying, to find solutions to problems. People say, well, why is there sin and death if there's a God and God is good? I say, because our work is not done. And our work in creation is to end sickness and death and hunger and despair. And we're making some progress on those things. Absolutely. My message is not one of doom and gloom because I believe this is the best time in human history to be alive. Does that mean that there isn't still lots more to do? There is tons to do. Feels like an infinite amount of things to do. But the message of Jesus, and I think the prophets in the Old and New Testament, is to keep pushing forward, to redeem, to save, to heal as many people as possible, and not to find ways to excuse ourselves for not healing them which I think many times we do in our religion, in our society. We say, well, we don't have to worry about those people down by the border because if they had followed the rules, but what Jesus often said in those circumstances, well, what if you had followed all the rules? You didn't follow every rule, did you? Well, one by one, people walk away if they can answer that question honestly. At the center of Jesus' work was Jesus' compassion. Mm -hmm. And I think it is what propelled Jesus toward activism and Jesus' followers. So the United Church of Christ, of which you are a member, has been an activist church for a long time. It's part of the tradition. Uh, it's been active in the civil rights movement. And you carrying that torch forward, working on very, very important issues as it connects with race and social injustice. I'm wondering about you personally. In what way do you take inspiration from Jesus generally and on a daily basis? Well, the first thing for me is to personally is when I look at who Jesus is, and I do mean is because I'm a person who believes in the resurrection, I believe Jesus is alive and present with us. That the example of Jesus is one that can have two impacts. You could look at Jesus and say, oh, Jesus is just too good. I'll never be that good. On the other hand, you could look at Jesus and say, Jesus is so good, I want to be like him and strive to do that. And I think the latter way is the way that Jesus would have us be. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus didn't really condemn people for not being as good as he is or was or wanted them to be. I think Jesus condemned us for our lack of compassion for others. When we do communion at my church, and I stand before my people and I open the table, I say our table is open to everyone, saint, sinner, a little bit of both. The only thing you need to be to come to this table is hungry. And 
some people look at us, they think, he doesn't really mean that. And I say, do you think Jesus would invite you to his house and not feed you? I said, answer me. And the people answer, they say, no, no. I don't think Jesus would have me over and not feed me. I said, so neither do we feel that way. Everybody's welcome at this table. Mm -hmm. So there is not just the activist piece, the, the mental organizational piece. There is also the spiritual piece of transformation, where we believe that in the encounter with the holy, we become transformed. Mm -hmm. Our ability to become better, to do more things, increases by our being present with each other and with God in the world. Yeah. Byron Katie, who's a wonderful writer and, and a friend and a helper of a lot of people, she, she talks about enlightenment in a very interesting way because I think enlightenment can seem just so unreachable for most people. Be like, I'm never going to be like Jesus. And... She describes enlightenment as just, in, in much simpler attainable terms, it's just feeling a little bit lighter. Mm. And then she asks Jeff, what makes you feel lighter? Oh, well, when I give, mm -hmm. when I forgive, uh, when I'm compassionate. And she's like, okay, well, what makes you feel heavy? I said, well... When I'm carrying around anger or jealousy or if there's things that I'm just constantly feeling that I want and I'm chasing that all the time, she's like, oh, well, it's just so easy then. Let go of the things that make you feel heavy and just focus on the things that make you feel light. And that's the way to achieve enlightenment. Absolutely. I would agree with that a thousand percent. And... Wayne Dyer, who's another one of my teachers, he said, the angels you seek in your life will appear when they recognize themselves in you. So I think, you know, whether that means being more like Jesus every day, looking at what made him godlike, so special, and essentially trying to embody those characteristics and actions in our life every single day, that, for me, is what feels like enlightenment. Do you feel that way? Very much. Jesus didn't come to show us some examples of things we could not be. Jesus came to show us how to be just as good as he was and is. We often so magnify Jesus as the Son of God, that we missed Jesus' teaching that said very clearly, you are all sons and daughters of God. And that what I am, he says, not only will you do, can you do that, but you can do lots more. Yeah, you will accomplish everything that I have and more. That's right. And why don't we talk about that? We don't talk about that, I believe, because we're afraid. Mm. Because if I tell you that that is the teaching of Jesus, you might expect more from me. <laughs> and of course, if I tell myself that often enough, I might expect more from me. Yeah. Um, fortunately, we not only have the call, we also have the call to repentance and say that, no, I'm, I, I'm not there yet. Mm -hmm. 
yet. But I'm not called to some place that I can't get. Yeah. We can't get there. Do you think Jesus was more concerned with us loving God or us loving each other? Jesus said there's no difference. Yeah. So th this is the underlying connection that we lose when we are attached to the ego. My path is disconnected from others. My path is disconnected from God. I've heard people give different meaning to this, but when Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my load is light, to me that I was felt like because he felt a deep sense of connection to others and to God, that he f his load was light. What does that mean to you? For me, it opens up the idea that being connected to God enlarges our capacity to do good, to be good, to be effective in the world, that we shouldn't think about the outcome. We shouldn't think about failure. We shouldn't think about embarrassment. We should open ourselves to God. It is in that place that Jesus enlarges our capacity to do the impossible. And I think as more of us let go, more of that can happen. I believe. Yeah, would you say that if you're committed to following in the footsteps of Jesus, does that also necessitate that you are an activist? Well, that's an interesting question. The word obligation, sort of, I have to admit, it startles me a little bit. Mm. But yes, I think there is. There is an obligation, but I'd like to put it more in the context of things like things from nature, like the laws of gravity. In this world, if you jump from a two- or three-story building, you will hit the ground every time. Similarly, in the laws of God and in peace and justice and creation, if you truly submit yourself to the will in God and are committed to follow Jesus, you will have to become engaged. There's no doubt you will be required to be an activist at times that are inconvenient. Right. Yeah. I think that oftentimes people use their spirituality as this kind of sacred place that stands alone from the sulliness of the rest of the world. But really, in order to bend the arc of history, that you have to engage. Absolutely. You know, I was raised with this idea that sin, as we used to describe it, not a word we use much anymore, but I, I pull it out and use it sometimes, as it was always described when I was growing up as the transgression of the law. Mm-hmm. You know, in the United Church of Christ, uh, or in our congregational, traditional, even our, you know, several groups came together. I always say the way to, if you can say this, to, to piss off Congregationalists is to tell them what to do. 
<laughs> and yet there is something within you that calls you to do better by being engaged in the same way that if you are in love with your partner, your spouse, you want to take care of them in the way that is healthy and good and right and normal. Not from your perspective, but from theirs. Same is true with your children. You want to do good because you love them. And I think Jesus essentially said the same thing, that when we can bring the commandments and our love together, things work better. Yeah, that's beautiful. So when we can move into this time of year where we celebrate Christmas and then also go into the new year, which is filled with resolutions and, and good intentions, what's your message to people as we renew? I think um, especially this year, it is to believe. It is to hope beyond what we can see. It is at the point that Sometimes in the current environment, I felt and sometimes feel a sense of hopelessness. There are issues, there are things that are happening now that I thought we dealt with and wouldn't deal with anymore, but they're very present with us now. It would be easy to get discouraged, but that's only when you zoom in. When you zoom out and you realize that, as we used to say in my community, God's got us. It doesn't mean that, that my life is going to turn out and be perfect. I think what it means is that if I am surrendered to God's purpose and will, I am confident that God will accomplish God's purpose in the world. Jesus, at some point, must have thought, you know, when Jesus says on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? That is not a high moment in Jesus' career. <laughs> and it's near the end. I mean, so, you know, even Jesus is exasperated with, with the situation. But after the resurrection, when Jesus is with his disciples, he, he has pushed through. And he says, as I am, so you will be in the world. That is the hope. But... I make the same mistakes over and over again. I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe you reach this point of an enlightenment that, you know, but I don't, you know, I, I get better at some things. I get worse at others, it seems. But does it matter? I have given my life to God in the sense that the outcome belongs to God and is whatever I can do uh, with God and if I can be more open uh, and evolve to be a better person, to whatever extent that happens, I leave it to the will of God. In our tradition, there was um, something called the Heidelberg Catechism, which has a lot of things in it that I don't believe anymore. But the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer to that question is something like this. When I misquote it, I tell people it's the black version. Um, but I say, what is my only comfort in life and death? And is that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, 
but to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I believe that because I belong to God, everything's going to be all right. Bob Marley said it right best. Everything's going to be all right. <laughs> but that doesn't mean I don't have to work. I really have to be plugged into that energy. It isn't something I become by verbally saying that. I become, I belong by virtue of my putting my life into the energy that is God's and striving to do that every day. That's beautiful. Well, Pastor, you are humble and gentle, and you have a beautiful, serene confidence, and we're so grateful for all of the work that you're doing. So God bless you, and thank you for coming and visiting us again. Well, bless you, and thanks for having me. I, it's always great to see you and your team, which is a beautiful group of people. Thank you. God bless you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> activism is to act. Jesus taught us many things, but none more important than to be judged by our deeds, by our work, by how we act. Jesus accepted his crucifixion only after imparting his teachings into the world. He empowered us to take his message and share it, to love our fellow man, to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves, to care for the hungry, the poor, and the sick. I cannot imagine anything more revolutionary than a politics of love and compassion. And I cannot imagine a time in our history where this was needed as deeply as it is now. So I hope we can all take some time to reflect over this holiday season, to look inside ourselves and, and find that gospel of love and bring it forth unto the world. This is perhaps the most powerful activism we can enact. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays, and God bless you. Mm -hmm.